Children, grades K through 3, are dismissed through that door for children in worship. And i got to be honest with you, I know you guys are doing communion in there, and I know that there were cookies in there. So I offer to consecrate those part of the uh, communion this morning. Well, good morning. While they're on their way out, we'll get started. I, you know, uh, I got a um, smartwatch recently, and during the first service sermon, it said that I was being uh, too inactive, and it recommended that I try doing five to ten torso twists uh, during the sermon. So if I start doing that, feel free to join me, and we'll all be in a little better shape. But it just buzzed at me. So anyway, that's not what we're talking about this morning. Uh, if you can believe it, actually, how many of you go to the Gospel Project in the middle hour? Okay. So you guys can all steal my thunder because you've already heard uh, Exodus 18 this morning. But we're going to keep talking about it and uh, we're going to talk about leadership this morning. Now, how many of you have... Uh, heard a lecture or an inspirational talk or watched a TED talk where the guy is trying to convince you that everybody's a leader. You ever heard, you know, everybody's a leader. Really? Only four people. Anyone's heard that before? Okay. So you're going to have to take my word for it. That's a popular message. Lots of people will tell you that. And if you're like me, I kind of roll my eyes every time I hear someone say that. Um, and uh, the reason is not everyone feels like a leader all the time, and a lot of it comes down to how we misunderstand what it actually means to be a leader. And so I was reading this book uh, late last year, um, and it's called How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. And it's, uh, no, no offense, uh, <laughs> that's not why I picked up the book, uh, <laughs> um, Uh, but I was curious about it. I saw a lot of people talking about it. And so I thought, you know, let's, let's see what the, the hype is all about here. And what he said was, you know, most organizations, there's really only one or two people at the top that are in charge. And so when you hear all this talk about being a leader, you're like, well, I can't lead because I'm not in the position of authority. And he said, well, how many of you would say that in your family, in your uh, organization where you work in, the person at the top, everyone just listens to everything they do and do what they say all the time. How many people? Okay, at first service, Drew was very clear that that's not the case. And the idea here is that, well, there's uh, a position of leadership. Someone gives you a fancy title in a big office, and you're in a position of leadership, but that doesn't mean that people necessarily listen to you. And so perhaps the better way to think about uh, the leadership that we're talking about is the word influence. And everyone has some degree of influence in other people's lives, whether it's uh, in your family, in your workplace, uh, with your uh, neighbors, or in a small group at church. You have influence uh, over other people. And so the challenge this morning is to be a wise leader, is to look at what you're using that influence for, what impact does your influence have on others? And so that's what we're going to consider, and we're going to read this in Exodus chapter 18. It's page 56 on your pew Bible. If you want to turn there, we're going to be in uh, chapter 18 all day today, but we're going to break it into three different readings. 
So it's uh, also going to be on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you. And first, I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your written word. We thank you for uh, the examples of leadership that you have given us throughout uh, the history of your people and your relationship with your people. Uh, we pray now that you would just open our eyes and hearts to see uh, what you are saying to us through the passage this morning, uh, that we would uh, learn what you would have us learn and apply that to our hearts. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So Exodus chapter 18, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to go all the way to verse 12. And it begins, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he delivered them from out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you might wonder what just happened there and why that passage would say anything about leadership or influence. Because this is what happened. He met his father-in-law in the desert, and he told him a story about what had just happened, a story we've just read. His father rejoices, and then they go offer a burnt offering and worship God together. Is anyone struck by the leadership in that passage immediately? Just like, yeah, they're going to teach a seminar on that one. But what what may be kind of hidden in plain sight here is uh, what we have happening. And now remember, we were in chapter 17 last week. And in chapter 17, 16 and 17, the people were grumbling against Moses because they didn't have any bread and God provided bread. They were grumbling against Moses because they didn't have any water. And they were ready to kill Moses over it. And Moses was probably just about there with them. Uh, and God provides water from a rock. And then in chapter 18, he meets Jethro and says, you know, this is everything that's happened so far, shares with them all of this, and Jethro hears this and responds by rejoicing, saying, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now there's something to be learned from this interaction because if the, if the tone of verses 16, or chapter 16 and 17 were, uh, you know, so dour, so negative, and he goes and shares all this with Jethro, and Jethro responds by rejoicing, then there's something wrong with Jethro. Right? If he's hearing about other people's struggles and suffering and is rejoicing, there's a clinical term for that that Gene will teach you about if you uh, if you don't already know. But what we actually learned is something about the way that Moses presents this story to Jethro. So Moses tells him, of the story, but Moses frames the story in such a way of, to tell about God's faithfulness. Yes, there were struggles. Yes, there were hardships. But through all of that, God provided. He delivered them with plagues out of Egypt when they were pressed up against the Red Sea. He split the Red Sea. When they needed bread, it rained down from heaven. When they needed water, it sprung out of a rock. And so even though they were literally dying of hunger and thirst, God has provided in that 
is the tone with which Moses shares all of this with Jethro. So Jethro doesn't like that they suffered and struggled, but the way that Moses tells it causes him to rejoice. So we're going to pause real quick, and we're going to... There's a, a question for us here, and if you're a Christian, I want you to think about this. When you talk to other people about your church or the ministry that you're participating in, does it cause them to rejoice? If you talk to someone about your experience on a regular basis, now it would have been very easy for Moses to treat Jethro as a confidant. Just go to Jethro and say, Jethro, let me just tell you how terrible these people are. You know, God keeps doing this wonderful stuff for them, and now they're ready to kill me again because they were whining about bread, and now they're whining about water, and now they're telling me that they would have preferred to stay in slavery and they didn't want to come out of Egypt anyway. And, you know, he could have done that. It would have been all too easy. In fact, it would have been very natural to just say, I got a father-in-law, I got family here, I'm just going to tell them, you know, everything that's bothering me and just complain about it. But instead... He tells them all the things that have gone wrong, but he gives God credit for what has happened, and that is why they respond with worship. And in fact, some people, uh, in fact, I think most people, I read a few commentaries here, and most people believe that at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro was not a believer in the God of Israel. But by the end of this interaction, he's offering burnt sacrifices, and he is a follower of Yahweh, meaning the way that Moses has presented even the hard times, even the struggles, has led uh, Jethro to believe in the goodness of God. Now, imagine, if you will, and I know I'm pulling more unlikely scenarios out, but imagine a Christian, it doesn't have to be you, but imagine a Christian who goes and talks to their non-Christian friend on a regular basis. So whether it's coworker, neighbor, family, whatever, Christian, talking to a non-Christian. This happens every day, hopefully millions of times a day. And every time this Christian talks to the non-Christian, they say, you will not believe what my church is doing right now. They're a bunch of idiots. Or you will not believe what so-and-so said to me at church. Can you believe that person? They're so terrible. And they do this, and this is just how they relate. And then the church decides, you know, we're going to tell everybody, we're going to push everybody to invite their non-Christian friends to come to church sometime. And so this Christian says, you know what? I'm going to invite that non-Christian to church. And then the non-Christian says, what? No, thank you. An emphatic, no, thank you. Now, why do they say that? Because what you've presented them is not speaking of God's goodness. It's speaking of human wickedness. And most of us have our fill of that on a regular basis. We don't need more of that. And if that's how we're presenting our church, if that's how we're presenting our ministry that we're involved with to other people, then we shouldn't really be surprised. There's no mystery there why our invites are so ineffective. But if we're able to, now, if we're able to present it in a different way, perhaps we can see the results that Moses sees here. But there's a warning that comes with this. We don't want to overcorrect. Because many people will hear a message like this. In fact, many Christians will hear a message like this and they'll say, well, then I just need to pretend that everything's fine all the time. Uh, I just need to never share my struggles with anyone and just need to paint over everything. Don't hear what I'm not saying. That is not at all what's happening here. In fact, Moses goes out of his way to detail all of the hardships for Jethro, but he does it in a way that's not just complaining. It leads to rejoicing. 
And so there is a way to talk about those things, but there's a more productive way than most of us uh, have learned or have naturally picked up. And so he shares about their hardships, but he does it in a way that persuades other people to rejoice in God's faithfulness rather than join him in whining about other people's behavior. Do you see the difference there? That's a really small and subtle distinction, but it is a literal life-changing distinction. And so this doesn't mean that our problems aren't real. They're very real. It means that we are not defined by our problems. What defines Christian life, Christian behavior, is our reliance on God and our relationship to him. So our problems don't define us. God does. And when we do that, we can talk about our problems in such a way that it's not tying our whole identity to the struggles we face, to the problems uh, or the people we have to endure. And so the challenge for us from this passage alone is how do we look for the work of the Lord in every circumstance? How do we share our experiences, both our positive and our negative experiences, in a way that shows others what we really, truly, deeply believe, or at least what we say we believe? And if you, uh, it may remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Rejoice. Does anybody know where he was when he wrote that letter? In prison, chained to a dungeon wall. And so, he was not letting his circumstance define his outlook or the way that he had framed that situation. So, we see uh, wise leaders rejoice with others. We find a way to rejoice and we find a way to do it with others. It's one thing to privately think through all the ways that God has uh, been faithful to you, but it's another thing to take it to the next level and be sharing that with someone else, even when you're sharing about hardships. And so as we continue, we're going to pick up in verse 13, which is immediately where we left off. 13 to 18, it'll be on the, it already is on the screens. I will read it to you again. Uh, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his law. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. So, we've got another lesson in leadership right here, and we've actually got two packed into that tiny space right there, uh, and how to use your influence. And so, Moses' role, just to be clear, Moses serves as the mediator between God and his people. When the people have trouble, when they need a decision from God, they take it to Moses, Moses takes it to God, Moses brings it back from God, takes it to the people. And when God wants to tell something to the people, God gives it to Moses, Moses gives it to the people, and he serves as the mediator. He stands between. Now, that is an exhausting job if you've got a circle of 12 around you like Jesus does. But remember, Moses is serving this role as mediator for an entire nation. He's a busy dude. <laughs> sun up to sun down, he is... There's uh, two things we don't want to learn here. First, we learn from Jethro that we need the courage to challenge others when they are trapped in unhealthy behavior. So we need to learn from Jethro that uh, even when... Uh, 
even when we don't feel like we're worth now remember how this story would have gone if I had been involved, if I was Moses and my father-in-law came and says this to me after being a Christian for like five minutes, right? And I'm the mediator between God and his people. How am I going to take that? I'm going to say, Jethro, you know, you need to sit out a couple plays here. You know, you don't, re- you don't really know what you're talking about. You don't have all my theology. You don't have all my uh, wisdom, all of my experience. You don't have the direct pipeline to God. You just need to chill out for a minute. But that's not what Moses does, which is the second lesson. So one, we need the courage here of Jethro to challenge others when they are trapped in a health that are emerging just from this interaction. So uh, think, if you will, just try to remember a time when you saw something in another person's life and you knew it was wrecking them, yet they wouldn't listen to you. Has anyone ever been there? You see something terrible in someone's life, And if you're not raising your hand right now, go ask your friends and family and they will raise their hands because they'll be thinking of you. You're sitting right in front of them. And so we see people in unhealthy behavior and we uh, we plead with them and sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. And sometimes people plead with us and sometimes we listen, sometimes we don't. And so here's the key. This is a next step for you. If you don't have this happening on either end in your life, you need to be intentional. Go pick someone, go pray about it, and find someone. And if you need help finding someone, the church will help you find someone. But find someone and then invite them to give you that kind of feedback in your life. ...to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel, made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times... Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, I just want you to know, first of all, I've used the word judge a lot. Here, in, in chapter, right here, we see a crucial decision point for Moses. Now, he could, and presumably had already resisted uh, this idea of delegating. You don't become the mediator for one you know, to uh, tens of thousands of people without thinking, maybe there's a better way to do this. But sometimes we resist delegating because uh, Moses may have thought that, well, he knows best. I can't give this to someone else. They don't know all that I know. And the only way that people can know all that you know is that if you bring them alongside and teach them what you know. And so Moses here delegates uh, to some people who are chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, uh, and so Moses may have resisted this delegating, but once it was pointed out to him, he changed his ways. And so in this passage, Moses is frustrated by his own workload, but here's the key part. Moses is frustrated by being overworked, but so is everyone around him. Now we think a lot of times that when we're overworked, oh, it's so hard on us, and it is, but it's actually hard on everyone around you too. The impact of that, now think about this, if you had a simple decision that you needed someone, a judge, to go make. And this person said, I'm the only judge in the United States of America. You have to come to me. How long would you have to wait in line to get a simple decision? And so everyone, is the whole nation is brought to a bottleneck. Everything comes to a halt because Moses has to do everything himself. And Jethro comes along after being converted, you know, 10 minutes ago, and says, hey, I don't think you have to do that all yourself. 
And Moses says, you know, I think you might be onto something. And so everything piled up on him. He made people wait for days, all to get a simple decision. So he said, you know what? When there's a simple decision, I'm going to trust godly leaders to make those decisions. And if something really unique comes up, something really difficult, you can still bring it all the way up to Moses. And so the other thing we see here, which just looking forward in the book of Exodus, is we see the need for God's law. Without God's written law, the people had to take every issue before Moses. And spoiler alert, in chapter 20, God provides his law in the form of the Ten Commandments. And then for the rest of the Pentateuch, we get uh, little case laws, which, by the way, are one of my favorite things to preach on, the case laws in the Old Testament. In case you're ever wondering, uh, you know, if someone is taking their axe and they're cutting down a tree and the blade flies off their axe when they swing it back and it flies off and kills another person, what do you do in that situation? Bible's got you covered. <laughs> That's in there. And there's plenty more. And I think I may have even shared about the, the parapet law at one point in time. But we'll get there. The Gospel Project will keep us moving through the, the Old Testament. But this is why... Uh, now, how many of us, when I talk about the law, have a positive connotation with what it means to talk about the law? We love law. Well, yeah, the two lawyers in the front. Uh, <laughs> other than lawyers... <laughs> Most of us don't have a positive connotation with the law. Should have seen that coming. Um, but this is why, starting in Psalm 1, verse 2, it says that uh, the godly, they delight in the law of the Lord. They celebrate God's law because it makes clear to us how we are to live and what is important to God. Because every law that exists, exists to protect something. And if something is being protected by God's law, then you know that that thing being protected is close to God's heart. And so, for example, when you get to the Ten Commandments, and it says, do not murder, right? The, the bare minimum of that, in fact, I had a, a seminary professor who referred to it as the basement and the ceiling of the law. He said the basement of that law, do not murder, is to not kill people. So if you go around and avoid killing, actively killing people, then you have met the bare minimum requirements of do not murder. But why would God write do not murder? Most people know that murdering is bad, but do not murder is saying, well, actually what that's protecting, it builds a little shell around life and says that life is precious. Human life is valuable. It has inherent worth. And so there is a law here to protect that. And so if you want to do the bare minimum, you don't kill people. But if you want to do the maximum of that law, if you want to get to the heart of that law, where do you draw the line on valuing life? How how do you possibly achieve everything that that law is set out to protect? And so that means uh, improving the quality of the lives of others, that uh, healing the sick and caring for the poor and everything that's commanded of us in the Old and New Testaments uh, all really falls under that command of do not murder because what is being valued is life. And so in this passage today, and we need a wrap up here. But in this passage today, we see Jethro and Moses, and we see leadership in both of them, or influence, and God was good to his people. Now, this is what we might be seeing now, is um, not only did they have Moses, but they had Jethro, and Moses here is exhibiting wisdom as a leader. People of Israel were very lucky to have such a good leader, right? Well, it's not luck, first of all. It's uh, God's good grace has provided Moses as a leader, and he's given them uh, this great covenant mediator. And that's why when you read the rest of the Old Testament, they refer back to Moses 
in such a positive light. And when you go to the New Testament, they even are referring to Moses. They ask questions to Jesus about Moses' law. You know, what did Moses say about this and this? And so it's a little surprising then when you get to the New Testament and says, we have a covenant mediator better than Moses. It says, Moses was wonderful. He's the best covenant mediator the world has ever seen, but there's one who's better, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who who, uh, exhibits uh, perfect wisdom in every way. He's the head of the church, and as the mediator, we have constant access to God the Father directly through Jesus Christ. We don't wait in line for days for the decision of one human, but we have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. He serves his people, he serves the church selflessly and with wisdom beyond that of any human leader. He rejoices in suffering, he challenges uh, those who need it, and he shares the burden of God's mission with the people of his church. And see, that's everything we saw in this passage, even the delegating of God's work, Jesus has given to his church. He's given the work of God to the people of God. And so, uh, you need to ask yourself this morning, how can I grow in my wisdom or in my influence so that I can participate in the work of God that Jesus has given the church to do? So there are four, four questions. First, do I need to learn how to rejoice in the midst of suffering? Or maybe how do I learn to rejoice in the midst of suffering? And once again, it's not sweeping the suffering under the rug. It's not pretending that it doesn't exist It's how do I think of God's faithfulness? How do I share of God's goodness in the midst of that stuff? So that's one area to grow. The second, you may ask yourselves, is do I need to learn how to speak into others' lives? When I see that someone is in an unhealthy situation, do I need to learn, do I need to grow in that area? And the second is the other side of that, do I need help receiving correction from others? Now I'm going to get let you in on a secret. If you work on both of these at the same time, they feed off of each other. Because if you are humble in receiving uh, others' critiques and others' corrections, you will want to be more gracious when you give them to other people. And, you know, typically, the more gracious you are, the more effective I've found it to be. And as you see the life-changing grace in someone's life when you help them, uh, and correct them, you will then know that that is what's coming to you when you receive correction. And so both of these feed off each other. You can't be one or the other. Now, most of us have an inclination. Most of us would either love to be fixing uh, someone else's problems, or most of us don't want to do that, and we just want everyone to help us all the time. And it's actually both. Wisdom in leadership requires both. Learning how to speak effectively into other people's lives and learning to receive that kind of speech from others. Now, finally, perhaps you need to find a way to share your burdens with those that God has put around you, whether it's in your ministry, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your home. God has put people around you, and if you are not entrusting anything that God has given you to those, you're not really sharing life, you're not sharing your influence, uh, and you're not sharing your wisdom with others. And so God would like to see that happen uh, in your life, and you will see the fruit of that as soon as you uh, begin to try it. But God, now here's the important thing. Now I've given you four hard homework assignments there. Each one of those you can grow on for years and years to come. And uh, the more you grow in them, the more you will see your need to grow in them. But ultimately, 
It is God who is faithful to provide us the grace to grow in those areas. He gives us grace when we fail to grow in those areas, and he gives us the grace in order to enable us to grow. So God is faithful to give us the grace, so we need to pray and ask for a God who gives graciously to his people for the growth in those areas uh, and and all the help that he is willing to provide us uh, both in himself and in the people he has placed around us. Would you join me in prayer?